The headlines that hit us each day can feel so daunting, so looming. So we thought it'd tell us that a little bit more light to guide us might be just what we need. The Check-In is a weekly podcast with the Telos staff, reviewing headlines from the past week. We discuss current events through the lens of what it means to be a peacemaker today. Hey, welcome to the check-in. My name's David Gunger, checking in from New York City. Sarah, where are you checking in from? Checking in from Washington, D.C. Sharon. Checking in from the next cubicle over in Washington, D.C. Greg. From a warm and rainy New York City. Carly. Hi, everyone. From weak internet here in Jerusalem. Jack. Checking in from the Telos office in Jaffa. Todd. Checking in from Telos headquarters in Washington, D.C. Not in Annandale today. What a special day. And our host, David Cadaba. Checking in from the cubicle across the hallway in Washington, D.C. Today is September 9th, 2021. We have a lot to talk about today, but first we just want to check in and, and just acknowledge that we are still reeling from the events of last week, especially from Hurricane Ida, the flooding in the Northeast, as well as the destruction that happened in the South in Louisiana. We just wanted to take a moment to highlight, especially one of our dear partners, the Whitney Plantation. Um, The Whitney Plantation is in fact, actually the first museum in the US to focus on the lives of the people enslaved there. And unfortunately their property and buildings were just deeply heavily destroyed and um, impacted and damaged by this storm. And so we wanted to highlight that and encourage you all, if you have a minute, to go learn about the museum and consider even giving to their reconstruction efforts. This is an amazing institution and we encourage you to give. Today though, I wanna jump right into a discussion in Israel-Palestine. There has been an event that's captured the news cycle over there and even here in the US. Um, It's that six Palestinian prisoners of a high security prison near the Gilboa in Israel's north escaped just a few nights ago. Many of these prisoners are serving life sentences for involvement in terror activities, but two were still undergoing legal proceedings for their allegations at the time of their escape. As we speak, the prisoners remain at large. The responses to the prison break have differed across communities, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is a militant group um, and of which some of the escapees are a part, um, have celebrated the escape. Meanwhile, Israelis remain on high alert and fear this may embolden others. And I'm just curious to know from Jack and Carly, how are your communities responding to this news? What has been the conversation that you've been hearing? For certain, um, the communities are responding very differently. In the Palestinian community, it's very much viewed um, as a huge victory, uh, not just against the iron bars of prison, but the prison being a symbol of breaking away from bondage, um, symbolizing the whole occupation. So across Palestinian communities, in the West Bank, inside of Israel, in Gaza, for sure, um, it's been a source of empowerment um, and a general feeling that nothing is impossible. Um, that's the message that's been that's been delivered, that uh, freedom is possible if you want it bad enough. Um, and here are these prisoners that are in the highest security prison in Israel um, that houses uh, 
majority um, security detainees, which means um, political prisoners. Um, and these six guys managed to, to come out, um, to break out um, by digging a tunnel um, through an open space that was under the prison and then digging out. And this comes um, at the heels of other kind of prisoner-related news for Palestinians, and that's the news of the fa- female Palestinian prisoner, Anhar uh, al-Diq, that was just released last week. She was pregnant and in jail and due to give birth um, and under mounting pressure both internationally and locally here, she was released to house arrest um, and she actually just gave birth today. So it's just in, in the Palestinian community, this has felt like um, kind of a momentum breaking moment um, and, um, and just emboldening and empowering the community to fight for, to fight for freedom. Um, and it raises to the kind of the forelight, um, the, the issue of Palestinian political prisoners. And there's about 4,000 uh, Palestinian po- political prisoners at the moment. And so that's rarely discussed internationally, but it's a huge issue for the Palestinian community. Yeah, Jack, can you say just a little bit more on that, like Palestinians in our incarceration? My understanding is that more than 20% of Palestinian men, for example, have been incarcerated by Israel. And political prisoners, these are people you know, thousands of people every year held based on what they believe, not necessarily on anything done. And in conjunction with the practice of administrative detention, where, you know, Israel routinely arrests Palestinians and holds them for months without charge, including, you know, full disclosure, members of my own family. This is something ubiquitous. It's not, you know, ideal. Can you just say a little bit more about that? Because I think many of our listeners don't appreciate just how deeply, you know, um, incarceration touches every single Palestinian. I didn't realize this until kind of my first time entering the West Bank. I remember that was around 2007 at the, towards the end of the Second Intifada. And every person I came to know through professional work, people that worked, you know, with international development agencies, everyone that I came in touch with had a brother, a father, some male a sibling or you know a family member that had either been in or or currently serving a sentence in Israeli jails and that was just mind blowing for me um, and so the numbers that are coming out now around this issue is that between 800,000 to a million Palestinians have gone through Israeli jails from 1967 until today. Um, that's an astounding number. Uh, and so so for many you know what my Palestinians are saying this isn't you shouldn't be asking why these people broke away or but why are so many Palestinians being imprisoned why why are there 4000 currently political Palestinian political prisoners and two two of, and the two of the people that broke away are administrative were under administrative detention as you mentioned Greg so they didn't have charges pressed against them so they don't even any, any charges against them yeah exactly but like yeah and Jack I mean I'm also curious too because like you know when we go to Palestine we see most people describe themselves as living in a prison and you see these sniper towers everywhere and Palestinians can't even move between their own towns or villages so you know is there something deeper going on? Is this some symbolism not just for prisoners themselves, but also for all Palestinians who feel completely restricted um, in their lives by, you know, this Israeli control over them based on who they are? 
No, absolutely. That's exactly what, you know, if you take, uh, you know, social media, those are the messages, those are the tweets and the posts that are being shared that this is, you know, if you want it bad enough, freedom is possible. Um, We're all heading towards freedom. That's the message coming out of Gaza for sure, you know, often titled an open air prison. Um, that's the message out of the West Bank. So it's it's for sure seen larger than just six prisoners breaking out. It, I think maybe some people in the community have empathy towards those six people, but for sure the majority of the community are seeing this in, as, a, as a larger symbol of freedom. And I'll say that, like, I... I've experienced it completely different to you, Jack. Um, like over the holiday, it was Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. I was with my family in Tel Aviv. So they were seeing this news um, come out over the last few days. And, you know, most of these um, prisoners that escaped were actually um, not political prisoners, but had carried out very violent, serious terrorist attacks and have killed Israelis. Um, So um, for them to see, you know, these people escape was like a, you know, all of Israel was on red alert. Like this is a a scary, dangerous situation. Um, Also because my cousin is at the moment um, doing this hike um, it's called Shvil Israel, which is where you where you hike from the very north to the very south of Israel, um, and you, you know you stop along the way. So I think she was very worried. Um, his mum was very just worried about him because he was hiking up near the north, um, and what would happen if you know he came into contact with her and with, with these prisoners, and um, you know it's like a psychological thing like that. I think like. When you, when you see people escaping, it's, uh, you know, who have committed terror attacks, who are, you know, terrorists, uh, who are deemed terrorists, you know, the, the fear is like, um, where's my family? Where are my friends? They could be a target simply because they're Israeli. Carly, there's been this growing friction between, um, I mean, it's always been there, but between Palestinian citizens of Israel, Arab Israelis, and Jewish Israelis. And I'm just wondering, you know, in this moment, Jack said that Palestinians, including citizens of Israel, seem to be celebratory in this, you know, right now. And you're talking about your family being scared and fearful. And I'm just wondering, is there any reaction now to seeing, you know, um, among your family and your community the difference, you know, is that, oh, wow, part of, you know, 20% of our society is really excited about this and we're scared for our lives. Like, what does that look like? I think um, it's very separate. <laughs> Israeli, Jewish Israeli society and Palestinians, even Palestinian citizens of Israel, um, live in two totally different worlds, um, kind of mentally, emotionally. Um, you know, even if they're physically sharing the same space, um, will not often have meaningful relationships with one another. Um, not just like Arab, you know, citizens or, or Jews, like also amongst like Jewish society is very segregated. Um, I know segregated is a sensitive term in the U S context, but very separate. Um, and often people, um, 
you know, dehumanize the other because they don't have exposure to the others. So I think in this case, in this story, yeah, overwhelmingly um, a sense of um, fear and mistrust um, as we've had since the inception of the country and before. Yeah, I think it's really this this whole event is really interesting to me because it points to just the divides over whether institutions of justice can be trusted. Um, and so for some, you know, these individuals, as you're saying, are, are convicted criminals. They're guilty of committing heinous acts of terror against Israelis, and they're now on the loose. Um, but for others, you know, who distrust these very legal systems that put them behind bars, these are, you know, victims of a regime bent on their incarceration, whether or not they actually committed these crimes or not, and, and their escape is is a courageous act of, of liberation, in fact, a, a spokesperson from Palestinian Islamic Jihad said. So, Greg, can you just clarify for us, what's the truth about the system of justice? That's a loaded question. Um, but one thing, I, just drawing off of what you were saying, is that you know it's important to distinguish here that none of these prisoners are citizens of the state that was incarcerating them, right? So when we're talking about um, the 800 to 1,000 to million Palestinians who've been incarcerated by Israel, um, none of that those um, were, uh, were or are citizens of the state of Israel. And that's an important distinction to make here. That's something important. It's not just sort of distrust of a justice system. This justice system isn't even seen as being accountable to any of these people that it controls. So the Israeli military justice system controls millions of people's lives, their day-to-day life, where they can go, where they can work. It's facilitating the expansion of Jewish-only you know, communities, Israeli settlements on Palestinian land. This is not seen as a property dispute. There's something called an occupation, this military control. And this justice system is, you know, advancing that Israeli control over Palestinian life. That's why I think so many Palestinians feel presumptively, wait a second, this is, you know, whether they did something or not, this isn't this isn't about a crime. This isn't about criminal justice. This is about something deeper. And that something deeper is that the state of Israel controls millions of people, every aspect of their lives, to varying degrees based on who they are, based on the fact that they are Palestinian, Muslim, and Christian. And they will point to that fundamental injustice and say there's no way that what you call a justice system can deliver anything approximating justice if its whole goal is to deny us our basic human rights. I think, I don't mean to throw you under the bus, Decat, but I think that the question of what is the truth kind of is an antithesis to our principle and practice of holding competing truths in tension, because there are facts about what happened, there are facts about why people are in this system, but I think it's really important in this moment to hold both truths in tension, to understand why Palestinians feel the way they do, and also at the same time to take very seriously the fear of Jewish Israelis and what this represents to them. And as I've been thinking about, you know, these news stories this week and how we're going to talk about it and what it means for Telos to talk about this and what it means to genuinely hold these truths in tension, you know, if we're aiming for freedom, dignity, and security for Israelis and Palestinians, to me, this points back exactly to what Greg was saying about why it's so important to make sure the systems that people are caught up in are just and treat people fairly. Because 
right, what's happening right now, Palestinians are experiencing it so different from Jewish Israelis. And it's really important not to lose sight of the fact that Jewish Israelis have very legitimate fear about this and have a different perspective of the justice system. And I, you know, have put myself in those shoes this week thinking about what if that was me? You know, what if I felt like the system was fair and equitable, was there to protect me and people disregarded it? Like I would have a completely different emotional reaction than if I looked at it from a different angle. And so that's just something that I would I would put out there is that, you know, it's really important to talk about reforming these unjust systems because people have different perspectives of them. And part of the problem is thinking that systems that people are caught up in that are unjust aren't a problem because that's where we we lose sight of what it means to actually hold truth's intention and work for security, dignity, and freedom for everyone. But Sarah, I want to push back against something you said. I know others want to jump in. Um, the, the fact is that, you know, like for a justice system to be just, it has to be accountable. It can't be co-opted by just those in power. That's what presumptively corrupts any justice system. And by definition, a justice system that allows no recourse for the people that it's incarcerating, much less accountability to the people that it should be also protecting, um, is cannot deliver justice. It might be able to deliver justice in discrete circumstances, but there's something fundamentally flawed there. You got to be, look, you know, in Israel's justice system, administrative detention, we, ju- we sort of glided over that. You're able to hold, it's not just like, you know, the potential mastermind of 9-11. It's like just, you know, some kid who was throwing stones, who's 14 years old, 12 years old, and an Israeli tank in his village gets held in administrative detention for months on end without charge and without the ability to contest the charge or to even find out why he's being held. Like this is something that happens regularly. And so I do agree completely. One of those principles of peace is to not be dismissive of the different parties that we're working with um, and to recognize that Israelis and Israeli Jews in particular have legitimate security concerns and interests that should be recognized and that should not be dismissed. And if we're talking about creating just systems, we have to have some accountability there. Like if you're going to be incarcerating millions of Palestinians, well, they they should have a right to vote. There should be some accountability on how this this system is used or there should be some different accommodation here. Um, So anyways, I know some folks will disagree with me. I totally agree with everything you're saying. I think the point also that I saw of this story coming out was that it felt like more emotional because it was like Palestinians who carried out very specific violent attacks during the second intifada that killed Israelis. And I think if we're talking about trying to achieve a future here of peace and justice through nonviolence, and I know that's difficult for me to say in like this position of like power and privilege as an Israeli but um, like that's that's not possible through like that's only perpetuating fear and mistrust and like danger for me if like I can't walk in the street and be like you know feel secure as a Jew as an Israeli that like um, you know that someone is going to to hurt me or or kill me so um, I, I like, I think that also 
you know, like the system, of course, there needs to be accountability. Like people need to be given rights. Like also the occupation is a violent system um, that's perpetuating violence against Palestinians every day, um, not just through the prison system, but through every aspect of control and harm. Um, but I think like looking at the story, it was hard um, to jump to, you know, well, why are they being violent and why are they killing Israelis? Like, because of this, like, also immediate fear, immediate danger. Like, what do you do with that? How do you solve that today? Or how do you handle that? I think that's a, a great point, Carly. And I'm I'm really curious to see how things will develop in the near future in, in the responses to this event. Um, I've heard reports that at the prison where these 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 individuals escaped from, um, that these prisoners were, you know, put under increasingly intense security measures, and and there have been protests even in the prison. And so, I think your point about you know how these how these cycles of violence just continue to deepen, um, and what that does for a prospect of peace is really important. And and Sarah, I also I, I appreciated especially what you're saying about holding these truths in tension as well, and, and that maybe there's not just one truth, and there's multiple truths to 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 hold together. And um. I want to move on to our, our next point, kind of in, in light of that question of, of holding these truths in tension as well, because this weekend is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And we're, we're memorializing this um, also on the wake of our exit from Afghanistan, 20 years uh, of presence there. And for many of us on the team, 9-11 happened when we were children, myself included, um, while others of us can point to a distinct before and after of the tragedy. And I know with the pullout from Afghanistan, it has many of us just reflecting on, on what's changed in the past 20 years. How can we think about America's presence in the world and, and the impact that 9-11 had on our society and, and our culture? And DG and Greg, both of you are New Yorkers now. Um, and I just wanted to, to draw you in and um, give you a chance to share even maybe if you see the legacy of that event still and in the ways the city operates and in how its people and residents have healed what I don't know what your experience has been like in New York so my wife Kate and I live in New York City with our four children and we live in Chelsea however the church community that we're a part of was originally started in Tribeca which is right next to the financial district where ground zero is at if you ever find yourself in New York City, I really encourage you to go to the 9-11 Memorial. Um, it is incredibly well done and holds a space for a lot of grief for our city and for our nation. So this weekend is the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. And it's so much bigger than what any one person on this call or anywhere can try to sum up. I can say that I know that we're going to talk about the ripple effect of 9-11 and what it did to our nation and to the world. And for me, this weekend, for focusing on that grief, I'm trying to not forget um, the actual families that were affected and not forget that there are people still mourning the loss of loved ones. So we don't forget the victims or we don't forget the terror that we felt that day. And yet we don't forget the courage that was shown by neighbors by EMT workers, by hospital workers, by policemen, and by firefighters. And it really, for New York, it has defined us in a lot of ways. It's rallied us as New Yorkers. And I feel like this is one of those moments where it is important 
to be able to collectively grieve. We don't always do that well as Americans. Um, it's very easy to look at the ripple effects of this and point towards what happened with Iraq and with um, Afghanistan and different failures there. And it is legit. It is a legit critique critique. However, for me this weekend, I'm trying to, instead of just focus on that, try to kind of move from the 50,000 foot level of seeing all of the different complications with 9-11 to kind of zoom in for my own community on those who are still affected by the pain of it. Well, I, I very much resonate with all of your saying about all that you're saying about how we need to approach this collectively. And um, in terms of the lament and the memory. Uh, this is such an incredible scar for us as a nation. But I want to take this a different direction. I want to say um, that, you know, now is a time for, all, for us to be contemplative and reflective about the significance of this, not just sort of, you know, this scar in our life. What does 9-11 mean? 20 years later, we pull out of Afghanistan. We went into Afghanistan to destroy a safe haven for Al-Qaeda, to make sure Taliban could not provide a safe haven for Al-Qaeda and protect us from terrorist attacks. 20 years later, $2 trillion later, actually, if you calculate all the costs, $14 trillion later, tens of thousands of dollars for every single American citizen. Taliban is back in power, including some of the leaders from Guantanamo Bay that we had held in administrative detention uh, for, 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 for many years. And so why I'm saying that is not to, you know, beat the Biden administration over the head or Trump for negotiating this deal with the Taliban, but to take a big step back and to ask the question, what, what approach actually promotes peace and healing in the world? Was it this uber militaristic approach that we certainly had a rationale for and a justification for after 9-11, right? Um, and, and there was near unanimity within the U.S. Congress for at least Afghanistan, not necessarily Iraq, but still you had, you had this unanimity of this response. Or is there another way? And, and I like, could wax poetic and angrily and all sorts of different things over this for a long time. But I want to suggest that for those of us who call ourselves peacemakers, we're not trying to turn away from the complexity of the world. But I do think that what these last 20 years do show us is that this uber militaristic approach has a shelf life. It can only last so long, and it doesn't actually destroy the motivation of the people that we define as our enemies. In fact, I can guarantee you a lot of these movements feel emboldened now that, you know, the strongest military in the history of the world um, is no longer there and in control. So the question that I think we should be asking ourselves and I'm putting forward to the team is, okay, so this approach worked, but what's the different approach? How do we wrestle with some of these tough questions that there are people who want to do horrible things out there and who want to do violence? How do we, what does it, what does it mean to construct a robust use of quote, quote unquote, soft power? And can soft power, and 
you know, this is a leading question from from my perspective because I think the answer is an absolute yes. Can soft power actually bring true security, which is something that all of us want and need and feel particularly insecure right now, whether it's for Israelis talking about this prison break and the two-tiered system in Israel where Israelis control Palestinians based on who they are, or whether it's this broader geopolitical struggle um, against non-state actors. So I want to put that back to the team. When you when you endure something like you know, many Americans endured on nine eleven, um, there's a real emotional reaction, of course, and it's hard to not think about even revenge and to let yourself go to that place. And I think some of our f- even language and framing after nine eleven about what we did in response in terms of war in the Middle East was was very much framed that way. And it's it's not an unusual thing. You even heard President Biden use in the very same language. Um, after the ISIS-K attack on, you know, killing U.S. troops in the airport in Kabul a couple weeks ago and using the language of revenge and so forth. And it it definitely appeals to this, you know, this emotion that we feel when these horrible things happen. And yet um, it's it's almost always wrong. There is no revenge is what our friends at the Parent Circle have taught us so well. Uh, and it's true, and and it's a it's it's a bad motivator for uh, foreign policy or or national security. So I think that's that's definitely one of the many many lessons of 9/11. Uh, I mean, I've been very reflective, you know, about this as well. 9/11 was one of the most important inflection points in my life. There, there's just an un- unmistakable before and after about it, which I think you said that earlier too, David, but life changed in both small and large ways. I was working on Capitol Hill at the time here in Washington, and, and the immediate response for me was a mix of anger and bewilderment, and, and, and soon I began to understand also that I just had a lot to learn, um, and, and that 9-11 in some ways set me on a, a learning journey too. Um, I also remember being struck, as you know, as you said, David, about the unity and the stories of selfless heroes in the Twin Towers and on Flight 93 and amongst the first responders. And uh, some saw the path that we set out on with the invasion of first Afghanistan and then Iraq was was the wrong response. But like Greg said, at the time, there was strong bipartisan support for for both. Uh, and the voices of caution and nonviolence uh, and a more targeted response were, were ignored at the time. Um, I, I left Capitol Hill in 2003 and I went to work at the State Department. And my first week w- there in March of 2003 was the week we invaded Iraq. Um, and the war in Iraq in particular taught me to be a lot more sober about the ability of war and violence and occupation to achieve any good ends. It, it taught me to see the responsibilities of American power very differently than I had before, um, and it affirmed for me a conviction that America's interests in the world are, are best served when we, when American power is shaped or at least tempered by our highest ideals, by a commitment to universal human dignity and human rights. And it convinced me that too often we ask men and women in uniform to do things we should not ask them to do in asking soldiers to do the work of nation building and to carry out occupation of civilian populations. We're setting them up not only for fierce resistance, but ultimately for failure. And so, I mean, I'm still, you know, it's 20 years later, uh, and 9/11 definitely changed uh, so much about our world uh, and the city that I live in, and, and and but so much of the world. But it also changed a lot about me personally, and and 
set me on a sort of a series of questions and a learning journey that that definitely redirected a, a lot of the way I thought about the world. Now, I, I also just want to tack on to something you were saying, Todd, about revenge. Um, you know, I, I think all of us on this call, we don't want another 9-11. We don't want terrorism. We don't want occupy. We, we want to figure out how, if it's possible, to rid the world of these scourges. And yet, you know, some, so often we feel justified to do things because, okay, you hit me. That means I better hit you back. I need to, you know, I need to hit you back. Revenge is never a strategy. And one way to see that is to look at the strategy of the opponent. And so no praise whatsoever at all, obviously, to the despicable crimes that Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda have committed against us and the world. And yet they had a very clear strategy that we never talk about. Osama bin Laden's strategy with 9-11 was the only way to get them out, get them out of these military bases and, you know, holy land of Saudi Arabia and get them out of the Middle East is to draw them in because no foreign occupier is going to stay forever. And having this foreign occupation there that's violent is going to get people on our side against these people who eventually will leave. Like that was their whole strategy that was mapped out explicitly. And we can go into detail on this on another call if folks want. And But my point here is that, you know, we stepped right into this uncritically figuring out like, okay, wait, our opponent hit us to provoke a response from us. Maybe we should think if we want to defeat that opponent or defeat this larger thing of terror against civilians, maybe we should consider whether or not we're playing into their strategy or not. Maybe we should actually think about what this means. And sometimes I think the debate around, you know, the so-called war on terror and all of these security issues segments this stuff out. It says, well, a nonviolent approach is non-strategic. And I'm like, well, how is the violent approach strategic, as you said, Todd, it's emotional in this instance. And look where it got us. We played right into the strategy and ISIS, ISIS-K, all of these things have grown out. on. It's not a foregone conclusion that they're going to succeed. But yeah, we were never going to stay there for 100 years, 200 years. This was not our our land. And, and now we've, we've, we may have actually emboldened the very people that we set out to marginalize and destroy. Thinking about um, not just revenge to me that at least from a, I was 11 when, um, 9-11 happened. So, um, I remember it really clearly. Um, and I remember like my parents and my church and communities talking about it. And I don't remember there being this sense of revenge necessarily as much as fear. And I think that we need to acknowledge the motivating power of fear. Um, and not saying that like, Revenge wasn't part of the motivation, but especially um, in the lead up to the vote um, on invading Iraq, I remember it was just like this, like, ginning up of this emotion of fear, like, we have to go in here because if we don't, these bad things are going to happen again and we will be attacked again and we'll see things like this happen on our soil again. Um, and so not to, like, excuse or to... Um, what we did and we can talk a lot about whether <laughs> invading Iraq was a good idea or not and all that stuff. Um, but I think that remembering to kind of put ourselves back in the, in the mindset of what was happening at the time, like fear was a huge motivating influence, not just, I don't think it was just revenge. I think it was acting out of fear. Yeah. And not to compare the situation at all, but on this topic of fear, like if you look at 
Israelis of my generation that are, you know, grew up during the 90s and 2000s during the Second Intifada. Like there was a lot of violence in the street. Like people were totally afraid to go to school, to go to work, to get on a bus, to leave the house because there were bombings happening all the time. There were people being killed. There was blood and trauma and, you know, that's what's, even if it's not actively in the minds of people, it's uh, embedded into how they see Palestinians, how they see the other. And um, it's not, I think, yeah, like Sharon, it's not to justify or excuse this, but to maybe explain it and understand a bit more about what's going on psychologically. Yeah. And I think as peacemakers, like if we want to figure these things out and to make peace and to really commit ourselves to this, I think we really have to, even if we think that fear isn't justified or that fear is being used to justify bad things, we have to acknowledge it. And I think we really have to like dig into that and figure out how to make people not afraid. Um, Because if people are afraid, they're going to be much less willing to make concessions or to listen to other people that they conceive of as their enemies. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting, Sharon. And something that I'm also thinking about too is just the the power of narrative too. Um that this in the past twenty years have shown, particularly just the fact that I've you know, I've not grown up in a world where the US hasn't been at war in the Middle East. Like as long as I can remember the US has had troops in the Middle East and, you know, for the past twenty years the kinds of stories we see, you know, in Hollywood and elsewhere, typically, and often have, you know, Muslims or Arabs as some sort of, you know, enemy or um, the person that needs to be defeated in this story. And I, and I, you know, growing up in that world and the narratives that you hear, it, it shapes people's perspectives and it creates an, an other um, in a type of person. And, you know, I've seen that play out in my own life and the lives of you know, other folks I know who are Arab American or who are Muslim. Um, and, and even as we wrestle and hold intention, this, this grief of what happened and wanting a world where this doesn't happen, we also need to recognize too, this is the ways that we, we create others and enemies out of folks um, through the stories that we tell. Sharon, I agree with that. And I just have a, a question and maybe this is for another call because we're at the end of this one. But do you think that perhaps sort of like casting some vision of what a safe and secure world could credibly look like might be pretty necessary to alleviate some of that fear. And the reason why I ask that is because I can see somebody listening to this chat and going like, okay, you mentioned all the negative reasons and why X and Y and Z doesn't work. But like, okay, what does peacemaking look like here? Just telling people, oh, they're so wonderful. And we, you know, sit back, kumbaya, let's all love each other. How does that actually protect me and my family? How does that other stop another 9-11? And I think that's something that we haven't done a really good enough job at as, you know, so-called peacemakers is casting a credible alternate vision for how, you know, how we're going to actually achieve security. I have a lot of thoughts in response to that, Greg, and in response to other people have been saying, especially around fear. But like what I keep coming back to is you cannot kill an ideology. And so if we are not casting that vision and we're only acting militarily, like I, I mean, I was kind of a weird kid, um, but had a, a pin on my backpack that said, why do we kill people who kill people to show that killing people is wrong? Like, I think that there's a hypocrisy in some of our actions that we're, we're doing that are aimed towards good ends that we want to see in the world. But the means that we're using to get there undercut the very values we stand to support. 
And I want to touch too on what Sharon was saying about fear. Like, so I was six on 9-11 and for a variety of factors, like remember it more than I think I should have. But that fear, like I was very scared for a long time to fly, to go to big cities. And we flew a lot back then to visit family. And what my mom kept saying was, you know, your fear means the terrorists have won. If you are feeling terrorists, it mean, or terror, that means the terrorists have won, which again, like to a six, seven, eight year old is maybe not the best advice. Um, but a big piece of that for me then was thinking about how people in other countries felt, how civilians felt when they were being killed, how, you know, sick Americans who are being targeted because people thought they were Muslims felt. Like, to me, seeing the fear and the violence that spread from the fear and violence that I felt, like, compounded that. And, you know, that doesn't help cast the vision for what a more peaceful future looks like. But I think that thinking about holding that tension between I am afraid and also I believe in a different future is really important and one that we still don't do very well as individuals and as a community and that we can get a lot better at. Empathy plays a big part in that. I mean, if we can, if we can just sit with that fear and then imagine other people's fear, and then and then you realize that's it's just another point of evidence that this strategy of you know mer- militarily striking back your enemy because they've instilled fear in you doesn't work um, because you're you're then recreating terror and there's you know, a lot of communities here in the Middle East, whether it's in Yemen or in Palestinians or Syrians that live in constant fear and constant terrorism, um, uh, many times state-sanctioned. And so that's where the violence comes out. And, and that's even just to go off of what you were saying, Sarah, um, just more reason to, to stop, you know, to not pass on that fear to another, to another community and think that that's going to solve our problem. A lot of people often, you know, ask me, oh, like, what do you think is the solution to, to, to what's going on in Israel-Palestine? Or what do you think the solution is here? And they often tell them, I, you know, I, I don't know. And, and it, you know, I wish I knew, but I'm going to take every day as a chance to lean further into discovering what that is. And it's okay to not have the full picture in this moment. Um, and so I'd encourage all of our listeners to, to keep leaning in, to keep investigating and opening up these conversations. And especially going back to what you said, Jack, in our places of fear, to open ourselves up to empathy, um, to, to experience and, and empathize the fear that others may have who are different from us. So that's my encouragement to you, listener. Appreciate you staying on for this conversation and we look forward to chatting with you next week. Hey friends, if you made it this far, thank you. I wanted to share with you the 9-11 piece that I commissioned at my church, Good Shepherd. I asked uh, John Arndt, who is my fellow bandmate for a band called The Brilliance. John is also an amazing composer, and I asked him to compose something this week for 9-11. So it's him and a string quartet. John is playing piano, Dr. Dave Campbell on cello, Tia Allen on viola, Lavinia Pavlish, And my partner, Kate Gunger, is on violin as well. So I hope that you enjoy this piece. It was recorded in New York City at General Seminary this week.